The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So I've been giving a series of talks on the uh, liberating potential of awareness, and uh, it's definitely not something you want to believe in, right, because the wanting present moment awareness to take care of my problems becomes a problem <laughs> in and of itself. But we want to check it out as if, you know, appropriately, because for 2,600 years or so, uh, using the teachings of the Buddha, so many people, I mean, millions and millions, of course, have made a big deal of this wisdom awareness thing. And so it's appropriate for us to ask, well, what's the big deal about wisdom and awareness? And does it really deliver what our heart deeply seeks, the release, the freedom that we sense is maybe possible for us humans? Does it deliver? And uh, like I mentioned, it doesn't really help to believe that it does. The whole point of connecting with some of these teachings is to move in this direction of independence where we hear something, right, or read something, learn something, and we get interested enough to make sure that we're clear about what we're hearing, what we're reading, so that we become initially independent enough to, in a sense, regurgitate the teaching to ourselves. Like, what was it that I read earlier in the day? Or what was it that I heard at Common Ground Meditation Center last week? And we bring it to mind, and then this part we call reflection or contemplation, like, well, what does this bit of information have to do with my lived experience right now? Like, how might it be pragmatically relevant to this experience of having a mind and body, a life? Is it relevant? Because if it's not relevant here and now, then it becomes just, you know, a shiny ornament that we, I'm a Buddhist, you know, or I believe in X, Y, and Z. And we do that with our all of our political and all kinds of things. We sort of cling to as almost like a brand. I'm this, is what I believe. I'm not that. But the, the practices aren't meant to be that kind of way because it doesn't take much observation of our own experience and others, other people, that that kind of clinging to some belief, wanting something to be true, you know, what we in Buddhism call fixed views, that's a cause for stress. I mean, we can see that all the time, and we can sense it in ourselves, and we can sense it in others. Clinging to views, clinging to opinions, to beliefs, just directly forget about what it sets in motion in our wider world, which is a lot more stress, just in that immediate sense, energetically, we get tight when we're clinging to views. Even really uh, skillful views. <laughs> like the Buddha has this great simile of the raft. Some of you have heard it. It's a pretty famous simile that the Buddha used in his teachings. And he said, it's like you're in this really tenuous, vulnerable place as a human being, and you look across this expanse of water 
and you know, you feel directly the insecurity and vulnerability, uncertainty here, and you see a safe space, but it's across the flood, across the body of water. So you collect twigs and branches and ropes and you make yourself a raft and you get across the flood and you're in a safe place. And then you think, well, this, this raft has been really helped me. I'm going to put it on my back and carry it around with me. And the Buddha says, no, even even wise teachings, wise practices that have been really skillful, you don't need to cling to. The clinging is unnecessary. The understanding of cause and effect, like how to take care of ourselves or how to take others, that's good to know, but we don't have to cling even to what we have come to understand in life. We don't have to make it something that a somebody clings to. Like, I mean, the obvious example would be something like, through all of our trials and tribulations, we learn that it works better when we're kind, and it doesn't work so well when we're mean, you know. But then we could get, really turn it into this burden, like, I'm all about kindness. Did I tell you I'm all about kindness? You should be about kindness. You know, I've got kindness on my wall at home. Do you want to come see it? You know, it's a thing for me. I'm all about kindness. And you can sense in ourselves and in others like, oh, I mean, I get why they recognize that this way of being, this way of relating has turned out to work for them. But why are they making it a heavy thing that they have to drag along? I'm sure you've caught yourself, I have, you know, where we're, we don't generally catch it right away, but we're invested in making sure somebody gets who we are. You know, it's like, do you got my brand? This is who I am. (laughs) And it's almost like we want them to repeat it back so we're sure that when they leave the interaction, they're going to know who I am. And we definitely don't want them to think we're somebody that we don't think we are. Have you noticed that that when somebody, especially somebody close to you, you sense that they have the wrong idea about you, about what you did in some particular situation, it's very hard to accept that people have rights to their own reality, like who they think you are, you know? And it's a, a huge burden to have to, to feel responsible to make sure that everybody thinks about me the way I want to be thought about. I mean, can you imagine what we go through? And how much suffering, whenever that person comes to mind, and then the thought arises, they don't get me, or they think I'm this way. And it's like, we just want to look for an opportunity to set them straight. And that's a real burden in life. So what I want to talk about, you know, in this series of talks on the liberating potential of awareness, wisdom and awareness, is how important wise view or the way the mind is relating. And the thing is, when we're present, you know, like right now, to some degree, we're aware, we're aware that this is being known to some degree, but we're not necessarily We just presume that what we're knowing is reality. But it's actually like uh, what this is, 
you could say is reality skewed or distorted by the way the mind is knowing, by the view or the pattern of how we understand how the mind makes up meaning. And this is related to the perceptual process. And, you know, we know this is true because we can be with somebody, like a good friend even, or partner, and uh, same place, you know, having some version of the same experience, but we have very different realities, different interpretations, even though we were sort of in the same place at the same time. Because reality is, or our experience, I should say, is something being known. And the being known part is, a, is almost always being colored by different ways of relating, different views, different perspectives, the attitude in the mind, and just those patterns of distortion that are so omnipresent we don't realize. Like the obvious one is we just experience everything in terms of a me who's having an experience. And that perspective that this experience is happening to me, we rarely see that as something happening in the moment. Like that's a, what we in Buddhism would call a distortion. Because actually our experience right now isn't, this is happening to me. Actually, when we get, when the system settles, and therefore can be more clear, it's simply something being known. And even if there's that feeling that it's really personal what's happening, that's the something that's being known. It's never more than that, an experience being known. And another thing is the, how often, almost always, there's some sense of permanence or static set quality to our experience, like I'm really at common ground, and that idea of being at common ground has a permanence, a set. We don't experience it as, like there really isn't a thing, common ground or Minneapolis or any of the nouns <laughs> that dominate how we understand experience. There's nothing really established. It's all movement, flow. But we don't experience it that way because our experience is distorted. And it's distorted into this binary of good and bad. So things that we like, you know, we see as good, but there's nothing essentially good in our pleasant experiences or bad in our unpleasant experience. It's just that those sensations or that sight or that sound being known and the mind's labeling or understanding it as painful or pleasant or neutral. But in that essential thing, that, you know, essential way that something's good or beautiful or ugly or bad or painful, that's a projection. It, it's making something extra it's just this experience being felt. So whatever that experience of unpleasantness is, it's just that being known. And you can do this, like when you're 
smelling an unpleasant smell that let's say isn't harmful, you know, and uh, you can go back and forth. It's really a good Dharma practice just to go back and forth between that very personal, like this is not okay for me, this is a bad smell that I'm having, to it's just the smell being known. It's just the unpleasantness of the smell being known. And, th and then all of a sudden, the experience doesn't include the duality of good and bad. It's just something being known. And then you can go flip back into that reality. You know, look, this is definitely bad. And I need, you know, I really would prefer not this. And to, so it's almost like you're understanding that we have this capacity to live in two different realities, and they're not like in different places. We can be in a very self-centered reality, and there's a way to drop that or abandon that, and then it's not that very self-centered reality, whatever you want to call that. You know, a wiser way of relating is one way you might call that. But it's like a different reality. And you know how it is, because some things we used to take very personally, you know, a few years back or 20 years ago, that now we have a lot more wisdom around and it doesn't generate a lot of personal drama for us, right? But we can probably still like put ourselves back in that old frame of mind, right? Like, oh yeah, there's that. Oh yeah, this would have really rocked my boat back in the day. You know, I would have been thrown for a loop. I would have been upset. I wouldn't have been able to put this down. I would have freaked out, I would have, you know. And now, it's like, it's sort of like you can see that reality, but the mind isn't caught by that reality. Like you still understand the structure of that reality, but it's not such a big thing. Like we had a child in the room a little bit ago, I think they're walking in the lobby maybe, but uh, you know, it's the same thing. Maybe the first child you have, I didn't raise kids, but, so it's easy for me to speculate. <laughs> but some of you with more expertise know, probably know this. It's like our, the way we relate to our child being upset, the first child in the first months, you know, it's maybe one thing, the crying or the dis-ease of our child is impactful in one way. But then after you've seen it, you know, hundreds of nights to three kids or something like that, them being ill at ease for whatever reason, there's probably a lot more space if you survive that long, right? <laughs> like, yeah, sometimes it's like this. And, and that one way, like if we're gonna survive as a parent or even a lover or a friend, we have to learn how to have more space around those people we love, they're suffering. If we personalize the uh, dis-ease the suffering of our loved ones, one, we don't help them. All of a sudden they have another burden besides whatever's causing them suffering is they're aware that now I'm making this person who I love upset. You know, my suffering is a cause for their suffering. Well, that doesn't help them. You know, it's like going to see somebody in the hospital. You know, we would never go up to them and say, you know, your cancer is really driving me crazy. <laughs> I really need this to go into remission and go away. 
Uh, and I'm really getting impatient with this whole thing. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it would be so offensive. But, but we feel, that's how we feel often around other people suffering. We feel bothered by it. You know, bothered by the continuing racism in our country or bothered by this or that injustice in the world. Um, but it, it can be just an ego trip, you know, where, where it's like, uh, I don't want to be bothered. So then we, you know, blame somebody for the continuing injustices in the world or, you know, we deny it because we haven't learned how to, like it almost feels an affront to suffering of the world, of those we care about, to have equanimity with suffering. But that's the only way we're going to get close to suffering if we're not afraid of it. Our own suffering, the suffering of those around us, and this all has to do with what we call wise view. That's in a, in a way, that's the definition of wise view, right? It's the understanding, the wisdom or the understanding that allows us to be intimate with all things, joys and sorrows, pleasantness, unpleasantness, and even neutrality. So what understanding allows our heart to remain even, even, as the Buddha says, even in a world that's uneven, or experience that's all over the place, described as the eight vicissitudes or the eight worldly winds. Some of you have heard this teaching from the Buddha, gain and loss. This is like what we're always cycling through, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, pain and pleasure, right? Sounds familiar. And it, you know, those of us with more privilege, those of us in more difficult circumstances, still we're all cycling through more pleasantness and less pleasantness, more times when people appreciate and like us, times when people don't like us, don't want to be around us, and it just keeps moving. And so what is the understanding? And again, this is something, it's not like to figure this out. It's almost better to think about this in terms of trial and error, like as we move through the eight worldly winds, like every day, what understanding gets me through the day without getting thrown around by all the ups and downs? What is that understanding? So it's not just getting through the day, but there's this recollectedness that's happening as we're getting through the day. So when we're feeling really reactive and thrown around by circumstance, we're correlating that with some way the mind is relating. Oh, when the mind is relating this way, then all the ups and downs are a cause for stress. And then other times when we feel we have more immunity from stress, not because the circumstances are nice, normal day with the gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, but all of a sudden just seemingly more immunity, more evenness, even amongst all of those good and bad things happening, well, what is it, what is the understanding? What's the way the mind is understanding or relating 
that has protected the balance, allowed this balance, this evenness, this clarity, this intimacy to remain undisturbed. And then we, you know, from our elders, people who've been doing this practice all the way back to the time of the Buddha, the Buddha himself, you know, we have pointing out instructions like the Buddha has and other teachers, you know, they've done their best to articulate, put into words, the understanding that when you have this understanding, then your heart will be protected. And this is where that that simile of the raft and the other simile that's related is the simile of the snake that the Buddha used. I'll, I'll share this in a moment. But it's like, we can misuse the teachings like wanting them as something to cling to. But it, the, the teachings, the pointing out, like when the Buddha says, try, you know, reflect on this way of relating, because we have to make it our own way of relating. It's not enough that the Buddha related this way and had some immunity from getting pushed around by experience. We have to relate this way, right? So when we get a teaching like, you know, from the, I put the sutta, uh, the simile of the snake sutta or discourse from the Buddha, it's one of the more famous ones, in the Google Doc. So people here in the room, you can get this Google Doc by going to the public calendar, Common Ground's public calendar, look for the 1030 weekly practice group and the link for that Google Doc. And there are like 10 articles related to the series of talks there. And one of the most recent things I put in there is the sutta, the simile of the snake. And it's all about um, where somebody, uh, one of the monks, has what's called a pernicious view, right? He thinks the Buddha is teaching one thing when the Buddha is not teaching that. And the way he misunderstood the Buddha, he thought the Buddha was saying, wrongly he thought this, that when, when, you, uh, when you have some kind of, problem, like you really want something, the way to resolve the problem is to get what you want, right? Like, if you have a strong habit energy, you basically want to go with it, because it hurts to not go with the strong habit energy. You really want to go to the fridge, you know, and have that whatever is in your fridge that you want to have. And... If you just do what your habits tell you to do, there's no friction. It seems like, well, that's the easeful way. Right? So the way it's described in the discourse, um, as I understand the Dhamma taught by the Buddha, those things called obstructions by the Buddha are not uh, able to obstruct one who engages in them. <laughs> right? So if I just do what I want to do, then... Life is easy. And his fellow monks, you know, rolled their eyes probably and tried to say, hey, this is not what the Buddha teaches. And uh, it said in the sutta, he still, he still obstinately adhered to that pernicious view and continued to insist upon it. So eventually they talked to the Buddha and the Buddha told them, tell that monk to come see me. And so the Buddha... <laughs> You know, he, he repeated what he had said to the other monks, you know, this wrong view. And the Buddha said, misguided man, to whom have you ever known me to teach 
the teachings, the Dhamma, in that way? Have I not stated in many ways how obstructive things are obstructions and how they are able to obstruct one who engages in them? Right? So what the Buddha is saying here, we have to trust our experience. But we have to have both the depth and the breath to really understand. It's like just because something in, in the immediacy of the moment seems easier just to act out my habit energy, whatever it is, right? We're not seeing the depth of what's going on, right? Not there in our heart, in our mind, and we're not seeing what's getting set in motion. And this is really about how the mind relates to sense experience and how the mind relates to its views, its understanding about sense experience. That is where the problem, the essence of the problem is. And so this is where the Buddha teachings, they can't fix our problem, but they can support us in becoming independent in, in addressing this squeeze, this burden in our heart. And it's right about how we understand sense experience, how we relate to sense experience. And the thing is, we relate to sense experience, the general view, which is so pervasive, we don't even think about it as a view. It's the habit is so pervasive, is sense experience, it's my way of uh, being safe and feeling comfortable and being happy is through basically feeding unpleasant sense experience and avoiding unpleasant sense experience. That's the way we humans pursue happiness. Make sense? I mean, when we look at our experience, we try to keep close the pleasant, keep far away the unpleasant. And it's an ongoing thing because life is a changing dynamic. And so we're always, even like within our own mind, it's like, oh, that's an unpleasant memory, <laughs> you know? Or that's a pleasant memory. Okay. So we're always in this tense relationship with sense experience. And sense experience in this general sense includes our thoughts about sense experience. So it's not just what we see and hear and touch and smell and taste, you know, through the five, the sensitivities of our five senses, but it's also our thoughts about our sense experience too, right? Can be pleasant or unpleasant, true? I mean, if we remember the dog poop we saw on the sidewalk, for most of us, that's not a pleasant sense experience, right? Okay, and that thought, it, I don't have to see or smell the dog poop, I can just think about dog poop on the sidewalk, and that's unpleasant. Or you can think about, you know, when you go home, you get lunch, and that might be pleasant for some of you. So the Buddha's view that he asks us to check out, where we hear the view, and then he says, it's like a raft, and it's the same thing. It's like, we don't want to use the simile of the snake I was going to share with you is, you know, when we, the, a, a person wants to get rid of a snake, you know, he taught in India where there were snakes, big snakes, more than here for sure, in Minnesota. 
And you know, you don't grab the snake by the tail because it's going to swing around and bite you. And a lot of those snakes were poisonous. So there's a way to take a hold of a snake. You know, you pin it down with a forked stick, the neck, and then you grab the neck, right? And then you carry the snake where you need to carry it and let it go. And uh, in the same way, he's using this simile, like there's a way to use these teachings. Because if you use them incorrectly, it's going to bite you. You're going to become a Buddhist, <laughs> right? And then, and then all of a sudden, like I mentioned earlier, you have to sort of, that's just another weight, weightfulness to your brand, a Buddhist. I got to buy, now I got to figure out, like, what is a Buddhist dress like? I know they have kind of a calm vibe, right? <laughs> so then you got to repress all your kind of dynamic side of your personality because I decided I was a Buddhist. So that's called grabbing the teachings by the tail. And then we get, it ends up being a cause for suffering. But it's like, how do we hear the teachings? And the teaching then the sutta that the Buddha is talking about, I'll read now. It's a long, I mean, not that long, 10 pages or so. But you can get it. Um, and you might enjoy reading, especially if you haven't read too many. And, you know, there's, when you read these discourses of the Buddha, remember they've been written in a way that was an oral tradition for about 500 years and then written in a way that uh, supported memorization because during those early centuries when it was just an oral tradition, they, they were recorded, the teachings were recorded in a very repetitious way that made it easier to catch mistakes because the teachings get repeated in the, each discourse, within each discourse. Anyway, this last section, or close to the last section, he goes, therefore, practitioner, practitioners, whatever is not yours, abandon it. When you have abandoned it, that will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. So the word abandon it, he's really talking about abandoning the identification or abandoning the attachment to things. That's the problem. It's the wrong understanding that's the problem. Not the, not the teaching itself, but the wrong understanding like, this is something I have. This is a powerful teaching that I have. Somebody donated to the center, our, our retreat center in Wisconsin. I was just uh, on retreat for four days with a group of co uh, community members. And I did some work during the work period and someone had donated a, a nice set of Milwaukee tools. Some of you who have tools know Milwaukee is a pretty good, high-quality brand of power tools that carpenters and other people have. And, uh, yeah, and I was just, you know, noticing, like, how effective, lightweight, powerful. These are all cordless tools now because the batteries are so small. And, yeah, it's just amazing compared to taking a screwdriver and unscrewing something, you know, with these tools. And, um, but you can imagine somebody getting a great set of tools and like wanting to put, a, put them on the mantle above the fireplace, like <laughs> beautiful, powerful tools. And every time someone would come by, it's like, let me show you my tools. <laughs> and never do what the tools were designed to do. And that's the same thing with these teachings. So, 
when you hear these teachings, like, how are you, when you go home today, how are you going to look at this, you know, whatever is not yours, abandon it. When you've abandoned it, that will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. And what is it that's not yours? Bodily experience, right? Just a tactile experience that you're feeling all the time. It's not yours. So feeling the air touching our skin right now, or feeling the ache in our knee, or whatever we're feeling, that sensation being known, right? That's what that is. It's something being known. And it's extra to say to ourselves, that pain is happening to me, or that pleasurable sensation is happening to me. That's a thought being known. But the sensation is just the sensation being known. And if we have a reaction to the sensation, that's just a thought being known. If there's some feeling tone, energetic feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, that's just that energetic feeling tone being known. So we're going to abandon making something more than what it is. Every single sense experience we've ever had the most sublime or beautiful, pleasant sense experience, thought about sense experience we've had, or the most horrendous, painful sense experience we've had, is really just that. It's just that appearance of something being known. And it's shocking when we realize that. But this is what we have to take the teaching and then use any moment will do. You don't need a special moment like this moment, even listening to the talk. Oh, this is just this experience being known. And if you're excited or if you're moved, that's just that experience being known. If you're bored or or rejecting somehow, think it's wrong, whatever that is, that's an experience being known. So let me just finish this before we wrap up today. When you've abandoned it, that will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. That's what we check out. Like, is that actually true for me in my lived experience? And then he goes on. So the first is material form, you know, tactile experience, you could say. Feeling, feeling tone is not yours. Abandon it. When you've abandoned it, that will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. Perception is not yours. Abandon it. When you've abandoned it, but you are abandoning the wrong identification. You're not trying to get rid of perception. Can you do that? No. Perception is just like what happens, you know, as long as we have this life, that part of the mind that perceives is going to be perceiving. That's just what that part of the mind does. It, it in a sense, names sense experience. You know, oh, that's a person. Right? That's a perception or that's a wall. That's called perception, where the mind names or recognizes experience. Same with the feeling tone. Like when we see something that's unpleasant, we're not doing that unpleasantness. That just happens based on our conditioning or pleasantness, right? Same with as long as our eyes are working, they're going to be visual experience or auditory experience or smell, taste, touch experience. It just comes with the territory of having a mind and body that's working well enough. But he's saying, abandon the identification to all of the five sense senses, abandon to feeling tone, to perception, 
and uh, all the mental formations, all the thoughts, reactions we have to sense experience, that's just those reactions, those thoughts that arise. You know, like when we see somebody, all of our previous relation uh, moments of relating to that person, they kind of come online, don't they? And that's what the Buddha means by mental formations. It's kind of a catch-all term in terms of our mental activity, how the mind, whenever we have a sense experience, all how the past experiences that are in any way related to this current sense experience informs the current sense experience. And that category is called mental formations. And then consciousness itself, the capacity to know that can be recognized too as just something like, oh, there's consciousness. How do I know there's consciousness? Because stuff is being known, right? And so that can be recognized in a sense indirectly because things are being known. But we don't have to take consciousness personally. It's our habit to take consciousness personally. But are you doing it or is there... No, no, it's just part of what this experience is, what we call being human. These things, and the Buddha is saying, abandon it. And then there's one more. What do you think? This is the simile the Buddha uses here, and we'll end with this. Practitioners, what do you think? If people carried off grass, sticks, branches, and leaves in this jetta grove, right, this is a Somebody back at the time of the Buddha donated this place for the monks and nuns to practice, um, a beautiful garden. If somebody carried away all the twigs, grass, so on, from Jetta's grove, or burned them, or did what they liked with them, would you think people are carrying us off, or burning us, or doing what they like with us? No, sir, and why not? Because that is neither ourself nor what belongs to ourself, right? Because, you know, Jutta Grove, it didn't belong to the monks and nuns. They were just allowed to use this garden. It was set aside for them, right? So the twigs and the leaves and whatever, that's not them. So the Buddha, you can see where he's going with this. Well, can we relate to our, what we tend to take personally in the same way? Just in the way we've also learned, like going back to the simile of those of you who have had kids, you know, when they're young, they're very much your kid. When they're 26 or 27, sort of your kid, sort of still yours, and sort of not yours. Like, I don't know who you are, you know? You kind of look like me when I was younger, but, you know, you are not me. And then later, maybe, I don't know, you know, it's just like, you've just become your own self, your own person. And uh, I love you, but you're not really me in any kind of way. And so we have to, the Buddha actually uses like that, um, whatever it is, 50-year experience, if you live long enough to see your child become 50, um, Like that could happen in a moment with any experience from that strong identification, this is I, me, or mine, to this is something being known, something to appreciate as its own arising 
but not me, not mine, not who I am. And you can use that simile as like a parent relating to their 50-year-old who's independent, making their own choices, finding their way, expressing their own personality, right? Their own lived experience, which is not the same as the parent. And by that time, you know, like, you know, as a 65-year-old, I see some of the relatedness to my parents, but, you know, I am not my parents. Like, anybody have doubt about that? <laughs> Sometimes we're a little stunned when we look in the mirror on that kind of gross level, like, you know, our nose may be the same as one of our parents or something, our hairline or something like that. But, uh, but in, a, in a more felt, integrated sense, we, it's very clear that no, we're not. And we can have that same relationship with thought, sight, sound, touch, all of our experience. It is what it is. It's just a very strong habit to be identified. So if you stay for the small, for the optional small groups, whether you're online, uh, Lucy's here today, or here in the building, you want to stay. We have small groups for 15 minutes. I'll just review how they work in case you might be interested in staying. So usually three or four people, sometimes a little bit more. You just introduce yourself. You can share your pronouns if you want. And then each person gets two minutes or so, up to three minutes at the most, just to talk about something related to the theme that I've spoke about or your practice. So in this, today's context, you know, might be just sharing places in your life when, where you went from attachment identification to having a lot more space of non-attachment, non-identification. And especially places where that can happen pretty quickly. I mean, it's okay to talk about how it happened over a long period of time, but also little bubbles where you were really attached and then the bubble burst and there was not attachment. Like you were really caught up in some self-drama, taking something really personally, and then something in your understanding shifted and a lot of that identification just dropped away. So those little or big testimonials can be very interesting to share of course, anything that's relevant is okay to share. And then after everyone in the small group shares, then there's usually five minutes or so for just open discussion. So we always have these after the Sunday morning, just a chance to get to know different community members. We try to organize them in a random way. Lucy will just divide those of you online up in random groups, um, but you don't have to stay. And maybe I'll just make one announcement. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.